This is Jerry Beck, animation historian extraordinaire, and you're listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome into the Skull Rock Podcast. Every week, we talk about all things Disney and pop culture with never-before-heard stories. Behind-the-scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, and much more. I'm your co-host, Al John Goh, longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culturist. Big fan of all that stuff, and I'm also a musician. You can contact me, email aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, your other pop culturist. Uh, I'm an artist, filmmaker, and author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Hey, uh, How are you, Al John? <laughs> I am good. I am good. I am psyched because we have an awesome guest in the waiting in the wings today. We, we do. And, and this is going to be a two parter because you just couldn't, honestly, if we, if we could, we'd do three or four parts with John Pomeroy, the legendary animator and producer. Uh, I mean, we're going to talk about his career uh, both at Disney and at Don Bluth productions and what he's doing now. And I'm, I'm just excited. I'm excited to see John, you know, it's been, in a couple of years because of the pandemic that I've actually seen him in person, but uh, this will be as close as we can get via Zoom. So that's coming right up. And the other thing I wanted to mention, Al John, is that this past week I saw the 80th anniversary screening of Casablanca, probably one of the best movies ever made. Uh, I mean, you know, some people would argue that and everybody has their opinion, but it really is uh, at the top of the list as far as, you know, an incredible cast, an incredibly directed film, the cinematography, the lighting, uh, sets, uh, even, you know, Max Steiner's score is fantastic, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So so I had a chance to see that on on a big screen in a movie theater, which was fantastic. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention is I did a, uh, a live interview with our friend Benji over at the laughing place.com. Yeah. Which is a great, not only website, but, you know, they do so much stuff over there. They do podcasts and live stream interviews and things like that. But I made an announcement on his show. Uh, I let the audience know that my next book is going to be The House of the Future, Walt Disney, MIT, and Monsanto's vision for tomorrow. Oh, that's exciting. That's really cool. Well, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm very excited about it. Well, I, I would be, too. I mean, Dave, you, you're not only just a prolific uh, author these days, but an award-winning one at that. So I'm looking forward to getting my hands on that book. And the guys at Laughing Place are, are great. I haven't talked to Benji in, in a while. It's been several years since D23. So it's, uh, it's good that uh, you're on the show. And I hope everyone's doing well over there at the Laughing Place. 
Yeah, they are. And, uh, and you know, because it was live stream, there was like live comments coming in. So I, I, I got to, you know, give a shout out to a few people and, and it was just great getting that instant feedback, which is so neat. Yeah. It'll be nice. One of these days we'll have to do a live stream and uh, maybe we can uh, partner up with laughing place to do another one of those things. A nice cute live Q and a, if you will. I, I, I would love to do that. You know, they're, they're great. You know, this whole podcast community that, that sort of the, the Disney, universe and and these pop culture podcasters it's just a great community absolutely well i i can't wait uh we'll be able to do more of that hopefully uh this coming year but i tell you we've got a lot of stuff to kind of uh delve into not only that but of course our john pomeroy interview which is going to be super cool so let's uh let's just go ahead and dive it straight into it shall we Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Breaking news. Breaking news. Breaking news, Dave. <laughs> this came across the old desk. Uh, you just happened to pass this note to me. Tiger King star Joe Exotic recent it's to 21 years in the pokey. Uh, former zookeeper's real name is Joe Maldonado. Passage was convicted of murder for hire case involving animal welfare activist Carol Baskin. Who also appeared in that Netflix docuseries, or should I say drama, or is it both? I uh, it's probably both. It's a, I mean, honestly, <laughs> I've watched both seasons. It's a, it's an absolute. You you can't look away. It's a train no, wreck. It's a complete. You know, train it's wreck. a train wreck of humanity. You know, and uh, and I I had to laugh when I this came through just before we uh, 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 started recording, and I had to laugh because Joe Exotic was was sentenced in January of 2020 to 22 years in prison, but the higher court said that, you know, he should have been sentenced on the charges together. So he needed to have a reduced sentence. So two years later, January, 2022, they resentenced him to 21 years. If I do my math correctly, it seems like he's getting an extra year. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I yeah sure i know that, it's craziness fine. it really it is, is. The, the whole thing is yeah the quote the quote is is here in hollywood reporter it says please don't make me die in prison waiting for a chance to be free he told a federal judge who resentenced him on a murder for hire charge oh yeah yeah i like i like the fact that you're channeling him there that, well, that was well, a good impression well yes dave <laughs> i am i am i am joe exotic uh, yeah, oh my god! The worst impression anyway. ever. Worst impression. Uh, speaking of uh, interesting news and perhaps some bad PR, uh, I've got a little clip for us here. The film is called The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. It's directed, produced, narrated by Roy Disney's granddaughter, Abigail Disney. She joins me now. Thank you. How many of you know somebody who have gone without medical care because they can't afford it? What? How many of y'all have children? She's taking a... uh, I am somebody who doesn't have kids. I don't have the finances to take care of a child in the way that I would like to. It's affected my ability to family plan and to look towards my future as far as my personal life. And it's not, you know, this is not where I thought I'd be at 33. Okay, so... There's a little clip. Uh, this comes to us from Fork Films um, and a little bit of Abigail Disney um, talking about her new uh, docuseries, American Dream. And this was on CNN uh, just the other day. So 
Dave, uh, this we talked about this a little bit last week about uh, how large corporations and the employees are being, um, I guess, not not being compensated uh, properly. But that's Abigail Disney's thing, right? She she's an yeah. Activist for those look, you know, I I think you know we, we mentioned this before. Everybody has their point of view. Uh, this particular documentary uh, has a, a very strong point of view uh, and doesn't necessarily show both sides of it. Right. I also think that, um, you know, there are issues out there uh, with pay and paying living wages. But I also think that, you know, I, I have to say, you know, since when did like a McDonald's job become a career? Right. Right. You know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, if, if you want to pay people 25, 30, $40 an hour to do those kinds of jobs, then that's going to be reflected in the menu prices. Right. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and it just becomes this vicious circle because everything goes up uh, in cost. Uh, so, I mean, to me, some of the jobs down at Disneyland are seasonal jobs, you know, or Disney World are seasonal jobs. Uh, you know, they load up during the summer uh, and those are great jobs to have when you're in college uh, and things like that. But, you know, is, you know, is it a career? That's right. Uh, I, and, that, and I'm just asking that question. Sure. Uh, you know, are, is somebody selling, you know, uh, scooping ice cream at the carnation store? Is that their career? And are, and are they expecting to get thirty five, forty dollars an hour plus benefits? Sure. Right. And yeah. I, I, because I, well, then that ice cream cone is going to cost fifteen dollars. Well, of course, or twenty dollars. Well, know? and well, and case in point, Starbucks charges X amount for a, cu a cup of coffee these days, too. Right. right. So I, yeah. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I understand that, uh, that, that question and it's something that definitely needs to be explored. I mean, I know that when I was going to college, when I was in high school, uh, but definitely in college, I had multiple jobs working at, at uh, being a stock room over at target. And I also worked at a Sam goodies. I also, so I worked like three jobs, <laughs> yeah. you know, going to college, but that's just what we did, you know? So I, but it is an interesting exploration for sure. And who knows, uh, you know, Abigail is really stirring some things up with this documentary for sure, but it does raise a lot of questions. So hopefully the dialogue is out there. You, you know, the, the thing I would hope is that somebody would come along, maybe, maybe it's a news program, maybe it's a CNBC, you know, business channel or somebody and, and tell both sides of the story. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just, I, you know, I have to say when, when things are lopsided to one point of view, you don't really get a sense of what's happening on the other side. And there's, there's some, I think, fantastic stories on the other side of the coin, so to speak. Oh, you absolutely. Know? Well, that's why that discussion's important, right? You bring yeah. people together to have a really real discussion about it and possibly spell out some solutions for it. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, uh, Bob Iger's in the news again, um, yeah. saying streaming is a severe injury to movie theaters. In a recent interview, you know, Dave, uh, Bob just left his uh, seat there as a chairman yeah. of the Walt Disney Company. But uh, when speaking about launching Disney Plus in a recent interview, and I believe this was that exit interview, New York uh, Post uh, article, uh, where he said um, – there was a choice in selecting films when a streaming service first launched, but quote, COVID took a lot of that choice away. 
Um, and that was part of that whole question about putting Black Widow on a Disney Plus service instead of going straight to the theatrical release, which of course was a big dust up with uh, Scarlett Johansson's camp and the Disney camp. But uh, quote, and they really got comfortable with it seeing streaming movies not only did they like it they discovered there's a huge choice and tremendous amount of quality for everybody as the former disney ceo continued dave um uh interesting comments from bob obviously he's got a vested interest in the company's success but um you know with the severe injury maybe that doesn't heal i mean by that it's not going to be fatal but it might be fatal to some as he said in this article yeah, you know something, I don't disagree with him at all, but I would also say that this is a wake-up call for the movie theater chains, you know, and maybe there's going to be a consolidation, a reduction in the number of screens out there. Maybe there's going to be, you know, better auditoriums and better seating. Uh, I mean, honestly, it's uh, something has to change within the movie theater uh, business. And as you know, and our listeners know, I go to the movies practically on a weekly basis Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm doing so safely. I'm wearing a mask, but I'm also making a choice. I'm seeing a lot of large, you know, big movies, tentpole movies on an IMAX screen, which is a higher ticket price. And there's typically, if I go to a matinee screening, there might be a dozen people in the theater. Mm -hmm. So I feel comfortable doing that. When I went to see the 80th anniversary of Casablanca, I was in a regular auditorium uh, at the local theater. But again, there was only 20, 25 people in the theater. Yeah. And, and and so, you know, from my perspective, the movie theaters need to step it up. They need to go and reexamine the concession stand. They need to reexamine the design of the movie theaters, the seating in the movie theaters. They need to do, uh, I think, some some serious soul searching if they're going to survive. And, yeah. and and it might be that you go back to these palace type theaters or, or combine a couple of auditorium into larger, you know, capacity um, stadium seating theaters uh, to show these tentpole movies. Uh, but, you know, they're not going to survive uh, with 12 or 20 people going into a theater. No. You know, I tell you what I do enjoy. I do enjoy dinner in a movie. And that's where we go anytime there's like a fork in, in dine or or some type of, you know, Almo uh, movie theater where they serve mm-hmm. food and drinks. I mean, we love that experience. So, well, maybe they will. Maybe they'll go and, and figure something out, hopefully. We, so that, you know, honestly, we could spend a whole show talking about this. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, uh, you also sent a note about Disney streaming platform launching in the UAE, United uh, Arab Emirates. Um, it's going to be rolled out into 42 countries and territories. It's huge expansion um, by the company. And once again, it should make uh, those uh, stakeholders, uh, stockholders, shareholders very, very happy <laughs> at this rollout. Yeah, and, and I got to tell you, you know, uh, United Arab Emirates, I've been there a number of times. Uh, I, I love the place. Uh, Dubai, yep. uh, Abu Dhabi. Yep. Uh, and, you know, Dubai has been described to me as the Star Wars bar. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're you know, true. It's, true. it's a, there, there's a lot of, uh, uh, unsavory things and people and, uh, business deals going on there that might not otherwise be done in other cities in the world. Uh, but it's a lovely place and, uh, very safe, very, very safe. Yeah. I found that to be the case. You know, I, I was over there in, uh, Bahrain 
uh, and some other places in that area too. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Well, they're going to be getting their dose of Disney plus launching this summer. So, um, you know, more- and, and by the way, lovely people, uh, yeah. you know, the Emiratis are, are just really very nice people and, uh, big Disney fans over there. Big oh, absolutely. Yeah. There was a lot of talk about opening another, another theme park over there for sure. You know, I, you know, something I think they'd love to have a theme park in the Middle East. Absolutely. Well, yeah. speaking of um, more Disney news, you know, um, another controversial uh, statement was made by Peter Dinklage. You know, he played uh, uh, a role in Thor Ragnarok. He has been, you know, of course, Game of Thrones, just a great actor. And of course, the Fox uh, X-Men franchise. But he responds to um, Snow White. Uh, and the seven dwarves, um, quote, reinforcing stereotypes from the original animated film. We're taking a different approach to these seven characters. That's what Disney said, but he was very, um, vocal about Mark, uh, in this Mark Merrow, uh, Marin podcast about, uh, the stereotypical treatment of little people, um, in this and, uh, about, well, you the know, dwarves. I, I gotta, I gotta tell you when it, I'm a fan of Peter Dinklage, yes. And I look at Peter Dinklage, not as a little person, yes. but as one of the great actors of our generation. 100%. I, I, I really believe that. He is an incredible actor. And uh, I, I've just been, you know, enthralled with his performances in whatever he's in, whether it's playing, you know, the, um, the, the story uh, expert in uh, Elf. Mm-hmm. Or uh, you know his character in the Game of Thrones series. Uh, I mean, for crying out loud, this guy is you know at the pinnacle of acting in my book, and I don't understand why nobody reached out to him. They're, they're making a big deal about uh, you know hiring a, a Latina at, or should I say Lat- Latinx? Yep, is that what they're saying now? Sure. Latinx yep. uh, actress to play Snow White. Um, I, I just don't get why they, they wouldn't, you know, pick up the phone and call somebody like Peter who is, you know, so huge in the business. Plus he's on the payroll, you know? Yeah. He's but on the payroll. I mean, so yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, pick up the phone and call him and say, Hey, we want to ask you frankly about Snow White and the seven dwarves and what's your thought, you know, and, and get that feedback. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Disney, Disney backtracked and he, of course they did issue that statement about, um, you know, about doing that, right. About, uh, you know, we're working with, you know, the, 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 you know, with people with dwarfism and trying to find out what the, the best way to, to, to do this in a very sensitive way and rightfully so they're, they're doing it, but you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit one of those things where, okay, this may have, this may have been triggered by this comment, but you know, no one called him, you know, about it. So I don't know if they're just backtracking or if they have actually, you know, taken that to consideration, but, you know, and I think there's been a lot of just recent things about Disney casting, you know, um, trying to show a little bit more inclusion, you know, in that. But uh, once again, uh, you know, is it, is it right? Is it right to, to take a, you know, this and, and maybe not um, give it the historical perspective from you know a, a fairy tale that happens in germany i don't know you know i don't yeah. i don't know but uh yeah i mean you should have talked to, to peter i think that would have been made, made you know I, I think this is just a case of uh you know people uh 
uh, within the company aren't uh, looking, you know, aren't stepping back and looking at these things in a holistic way. Well, and and truth be told, you know, there is some there is some things that Peter could have done too. He goes, well, they didn't necessarily ask me, but I would hope that this company, you know, being a more progressive company, takes a a stance and is reaching out to those people too. I mean, it's kind of flippant when you know, he says it in passing in this, if you listen to the entire podcast, you listen. Yeah. And hear it. But, so. but I got to tell you though, I mean, honestly, uh, you know, when you are uh, bending over backwards to try and be sensitive to uh, uh, racial and gender issues and disabilities and all of these things, then you see this happen. You're like, okay, somebody is clearly not keeping their eye on the ball. Well, they do have a whole entire wing dedicated for that, Dave. And I would hope that maybe, you know, a lot of companies have a, have a group of people that, that deal with that. And maybe it's time for them to have a group of Hollywood people to, to act as, um, oh, I don't know, just uh, as counsel. You know, for, yeah. for these type of issues, and say I'm on part of this council. You know, to yeah. to to do this, and Peter would be a great candidate for that. And, and, and by the way, no matter what you do, you're going to get criticism anyway. Oh. But you know, yeah. I mean, I remember back on Pocahontas, they brought in a Native American consultant. Uh, you know, during the production, and you know, there were still people that came out and made uh, critical, you know, comments and whatnot. So it, it's never a win-win situation for. For the company, so absolutely. But on a on a happier note, Mattel <laughs> wins the Disney Princess toy deal. That's huge. It is because you know uh, I, I don't know how many years ago it was, but uh, Mattel lost the Disney toy deal to Hasbro, and so I I think it's great that uh, Mattel and Disney are back in the toy business again, and Elsa from Frozen is going to be joining the Barbie lineup. Yeah. It seems to happen every few years, right? You know, so we'll see what happens there. But of course, it makes perfect sense. Those are the two biggest toy manufacturers in the world. So congratulations, Mattel, for winning that contract. Um, How about this, Dave? The Batman controversy. (laughs) It's a whole lot of nothing is what this is. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, does Batman kill, right? A vocal minority fans took issues with comments from star Robert Pattinson of the new Batman, who confirmed his Dark Knight does not kill, yet such a rule has existed for decades in the comics. And that's true with a lot of DC and Marvel heroes is that they don't kill. They don't kill people. So... Um, this is a case of a lot of people having too much time on their hands. Yeah. Is this really uh, you a know, thing? I, that's all I have to say. You know what I have to say though, about the Batman, which yes. is going to be coming out, I think in March, Yes. uh, the Batman, I saw the standee for it at the theater, uh, uh-huh. last week and it is massive. Yeah. Absolutely massive. It's in three sections. Hey. Wow. And it's fat. It's absolutely fantastic. I can't wait to see this reboot of the Batman. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've stopped calling him reboots because I feel like they are just standalone stories now. I mean, and that's fine. Yeah. This is an iconic character, just like the Joker. Just make these standalone films and make it good. That's all I ask. Make this, these stories good. So we'll see what happens uh-huh. there. But you know what? Superheroes sometimes do bad things and some people are casualties of that it's just what happens in superhero okay, movies I, I, i'm i'm going to show you a picture and I'll, I'll put this up on my facebook page at some point today but that's the standee back there oh my gosh you can it's see huge. it 
It's massive, you know. That's so. huge. Well, how about that? I can't wait to see. I'll that. pop that up on my Facebook page later on this afternoon. Follow the boss on on Facebook, guys. It's it's fun time. Um, in some sadder news. Oh, that's very good. What do you see in the clouds, Charlie Brown? Well, I was going to say I saw a ducky and a horsey, but I changed my mind. So we had the fortunate passing of Peter Robbins, and you just heard a clip there. From 1969's A Boy Named Charlie Brown, uh, Peter Robbins was the voice of Charlie Brown in the 1960s, and he has passed away at the age of 65. Wow, that's super young. Uh, yeah, Robbins, the, yeah, this is this is a very sad story. It's it, 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 you know he he committed suicide, and you know he he had been struggling with mental health issues, and uh, had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, uh, and and it's just sad to to read these kinds of stories because there is a lot of help out there, and for anybody who's feeling down, I mean you know call a suicide prevention hotline and talk to somebody. Absolutely. There's a there's quote, always there's always somebody out there to talk to. 100%. Uh, in 2019, shortly after he was released um, from uh, prison following a 2015 sentence for making criminal threats, right? Because of, as you said, the, the mental health issues. He did, quote, say, Charlie Brown fans are the greatest fans in the world, he said back then. And everybody is willing, I hope, to give me a second chance. And uh, now hopefully you can rest easy. Uh, Peter Robbins, you will be missed. Well, he's with Sparky Schultz now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, now we turn our attention to our guest waiting patiently in the green room, prolific guy, and of course, working with you, Dave, on some of my favorite video games, Space well, Ace. I have to say, I can't wait to talk to him. Absolutely. Here's our interview, part one with John Pomeroy. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, once again, we have an incredible guest, uh, somebody who I have to tell you all out in uh, our podcast land that uh, I've known pretty much my entire career in the animation business. Uh, and he is animator, film producer, writer, painter, incredible artist, Mr. John Pomeroy. Welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. Pleasure. And, and, and the, the audience goes wild. Uh, John, it's so great to see you. Um, I, and I got to tell you, I, I've been so enjoying doing this podcast with Al John during this pandemic because I get to see people I haven't seen in a while. And, and before we started recording, we were reminiscing about the fact that I, don't, I think the last time I saw you in person, you and your wife, Cammy, was back in 2019, which is yeah. crazy, isn't it? Yeah. CTN, CTN Expo. Yes. In Burbank. That's right. Yeah. You know, so anyway, it's so great to have you on the show. And and I have to say, we've going to break this into two parts because there is so much to talk with you about because I have to say your career is unbelievable and the string of screen credits is off the charts. But I want to start and I always start with our guests going way back to how you got into this business. I mean, what did you do like school-wise? Were you the guy in high school who was drawing cartoons to get the girls? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I was actually the guy that did cartoons and posters to get the money. <laughs> so, uh, but let's go, I mean, we can go back even further. I mean, it starts way back when I'm like seven or eight years old. I love movies. 
I would see films like, uh, I just saw it again recently, uh, The Time Machine. Do you remember George Powell's production of The Time Machine? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. We just had uh, uh, Arnold Leibowit on, who, who's like the George Powell archivist. Uh, and, uh, you know, knew George Powell and everything. He was on a couple weeks ago. So th- this is great. Yeah, The Time Machine. Well, I remember seeing that film a couple of times with my older brothers, and it made such an impression on me that I... I loved to play with clay. I would sculpt when I was about three and four years old. My mother gave me her dining room table and I went to town just sculpting movies. I would recreate them in clay. So I went back and I created the little caverns in the, in the world of the Morlocks, you know, with little water streams and the little sculpted Morlocks. And just, they were my action figures back then. So recreating stories in clay became kind of my, um, you know, my art moment for a young seven and eight year old. And then I graduated into puppets. I got very interested in marionettes and hand puppets. And I remember when I was about uh, 13 years old, I wanted to make an exact replica of Pinocchio from the Disney movie. And so uh, my brother took me downtown to the big Los Angeles Public Library and I went through their archive files, their picture files. And I unearthed, you know, some great pictures of uh, Pinocchio and the, and the Pinocchio production back in 1940, 1939. And I came across a book by a guy named Robert Field called The Art of Walt Disney. Now, this book was published back in 1941 at their era, the golden era of Disney animation. They had just finished Snow White. They were finishing up Pinocchio. They were in the middle of Fantasia doing Dumbo and Bambi. And I, and I forgot about the puppet. I started reading this book cover to cover and I got hooked. And I just said, this is, this is fabulous. I, I, I want to get into this art form. So from that point on, I started a, a monthly vigil of writing letters to Disney Studio, finding out how do you get in? What do you have to submit? What kind of artwork are you looking at for portfolio submissions? And that went on for about I don't know, seven or eight years. And, and they so, responded, right? They responded they, to they you. Would. They would. I would get a letter maybe every month, month and a half. Uh, one of the guys that would write me is animation supervisor back in the 50s and 60s, a guy named Andy Engman. And then his job was filled by the guy that we worked with uh, way back during the 70s and 80s, uh, Ed Hansen. Right. But Andy Eggman would write me back saying, well, this is this is what you can look forward to getting into as far as your art. Uh, I would recommend this and this and this. So he gave me some instruction. I would also write to him. How do you do your Xerox process? How do you paint your backgrounds? What kind of illustration board do you paint? Your? I was very interested, I think, in the background department more than I was in animation back then. I was I love painting. I love uh doing things in color. Um, and so that was kind of my passion. That was the direction I wanted to follow through on. And, and I think our listeners should know that you are an accomplished painter. In fact, you oh. do massive uh, military scenes and things like that, right? You're still doing that, aren't you, John? I, I, I'm not quite as much as I was years before, but every once in a while I get a request for, you know, a scene or, or some sort of illustration uh, I've done maybe uh, six or seven covers for Military History Magazine, and I love that. I mean, it's a, it's a way of taking everything that I've learned in animation and boiling it down to one image. I become my own director, light technician, editor, script writer, all in one image, and it's fun. I enjoy doing the research. I love history, so... 
goes hand in hand with my animation art form. So, so you, you were thinking of background painting. So you're now like, what, you're in high school at this point while you're still writing yeah, to them? Uh, I, yes. High school. I was, um, I was earning money uh, in anticipation of going to a, an accredited art school. I wanted to go to Cal arts. Cal arts was my first choice. This was just when they had converted from Chouinard over to California Institute of the arts. This has got to be like 1969, 1970. I submitted a portfolio and they turned me down because art center back or Cal, um, Cal arts was a very, um, aggressive, uh, modernist type of art school. And I was too traditional for them. Yeah. They, I mean, back then when they first really started up, it was a conceptual, a conceptual place. It was, you know, it was much more into the conceptual arts and much more avant-garde. So they, they would look at my military art and my portraits and my still lifes and said, no, no, we're not into realism. You're, you should go to somewhere else. Maybe Otis, think about Otis Academy. So it's like, I was very disappointed. And I thought, okay, what's the next best? And uh, my art teacher, a senior art teacher, Gary Clem told me about Art Center College of Design. They were probably one of the more reputable art schools as far as commercial arts, automotive design, illustration, fine arts. They would take your intuitive ability and craft it and discipline it into a money-making skill. And so I thought, okay, maybe I got to write a couple of letters to their, you know, what they, their admissions department. They didn't have human resources back then. And I, they sent me back a pamphlet and some literature. And I started thinking, this is what I've got to do. There was a book that I got when I was about 15 years old at Cherokee Bookstore in Hollywood years ago. It was called um, The Art of Animation by Bob Thomas. Mm -hmm. Now, this was a book not to be confused with the book that I formerly mentioned by Robert Field. This book was written during the time of the production of Sleeping Beauty. Right. And um, actually, Bob Thomas and I got to be good friends when I first started working over at Disney Studios. He would come by and visit the trainees because he was very excited that the baton was being passed on to a new generation of animation artists. But that book really, really got me fired up, uh, even more so than, than you know, what I had read before. And um, there was a picture in there at the end, and I think the title, it was, a, it was a photograph, black and white photograph of an artist in a suit with his portfolio walking through the door of administration in Andy Engman's office at Disney Studios. And the title of it, what every young artist should know. And that became my mantra. That photograph was burnt into my bridal lobe. And that is what I wanted to be with my portfolio in hand walking into Disney Studios. So whatever it took to get there, that's the route I would I would go. And I remember it, she in my sophomore year, a uh, friend of mine, we were very on fire about animation. His father was building us a animation camera stand and we lived out in Riverside County and he drove us from Riverside all the way to Burbank to go and visit Disney Studios and submit my first portfolio. I was 15 years old. Wow. Sophomore, sophomore at, uh, at Rubido High School in Riverside. And the guard at the gate looked at my work. I showed him cell setups that I had inked, backgrounds that I painted, sketches, portraits, whatever I had when I was 15 years old. 
And he looked at it and said, this is all really nice, but we're not hiring right now. There's just no openings in the animation department. I'm sorry. So I, it, rather than being crushed, I think I was just super jazzed that I actually saw the building where it all happened. It was right there at Disney Studios. It existed. The Mecca was real. You were at so, the you were at the, the the guard shack right on Buena Vista yeah, Street, right? The main the, the main oh, yeah. entrance, yeah. Yeah, and I had seen pictures of that same guard shack in the Robert Field book, uh, Art of Walt Disney, back in 1942. Same thing. So, but that got me even more fired up about finding the uh, right art school. And eventually, where I landed was Art Center College of Design, and. Um, I became a fine art major and then transferred over to being an illustration major because I thought all of the um, things that I needed to know as a background artist came from painting and drawing. And that's what I wanted to kind of center my focus on. And I remember starting there, this was 1971, 72 mm. was when I attended there. And uh, it was, it was grueling. I mean, I was up till, you know, three and four in the morning trying to get perspective assignments done or an illustration uh, piece of artwork for the next day's class. So whatever they had to tell me about discipline, I was learning. <laughs> it was, it was bloodshot eyes always every morning, you know, going into art center. Yeah, yeah. I loved it. it. It taught me things about you know, how to push myself, how to, you know, what I, what I could achieve, what my limits were, how to go beyond my limits. And everything was driven by the fact that whatever I was learning and preparing for was to get me into Disney studios in the background department. Yeah. That was my objective. And, and, and at that time, there really weren't uh, any animation programs like there are today. No. No. You know, and, and and that and that's the amazing thing. But but Disney was really looking for, you know, quick sketches, life drawings. They wanted to make sure that you had um, uh, draftsmanship skills. Right. Yes. yes. That was always first and foremost. Uh, I mean, the basis for almost every department, whether it was story sketch, layout, background, animation, conceptual art begins and ends with drawing. What's your yeah. drawing aptitude? How well can you capture a pose or an emotion or a scene or a forest or a castle? How well can you depict that and make it not only enticing, but entertaining? You become a storyteller with a pencil. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, let me ask you this. Did you graduate from uh, Art Center or did you, were you, were you, because it's so common with, with animation artists, they get through two or three years of art school and they're plucked out uh, because they're offered a job. I, that was, I was no different. So <laughs> I went, I was there for about two years. I got through my first two years there. Um, my second year, I got very chummy and very close to my uh, perspective professor, Ted Yunkin. Uh, I think I really loved his class. He would give us, you know, these assignments in perspective. And going back a little bit, um, I submitted three portfolios. The first one I told you about when I was 15, I came there and talked to the guard at the gate. The second portfolio was back in 1972. And I really worked hard on that. And uh, from what I hear, heard way back when from Ed Hansen, everybody liked the portfolio except one artist, Milt Call. Oh, wow. <laughs> and Milt thought I was... I was lacking in my sense of perspective. What? So whatever he saw in my foreshortening or my perspective, he didn't like. He thought I needed some more training. So 
he put the kibosh to me being hired that that month. And I was crushed. The second portfolio really hurt the turn down. So I remember uh, perspective class, I really, really wanted to dive in hard on that because I wanted to upgrade my portfolio, make it accepted on the third time around. And I remember my professor, Ted Youngkin, would give us assignments. I want you to do a staircase, maybe pick your staircase in the back of your boarding house where you guys are staying and sketch it out and try to think of lines of your, you know, your vanishing points, your horizon, get all of that into the drawing. Well, what I would end up doing is I would take it to the next step level. I would do, I did the grand staircase of um, the Tsars and Tsarina's palace at Tsarskoye Salo in St. Petersburg with the Red Army rushing up to arrest a Tsar Alexander <laughs> <laughs> or Nicholas. And uh, he loved that. He loved that I was really pushing the envelope and he ended up keeping uh, all of my assignments, all of the original art with I, with our artwork that I did. And I remember when I was accepted finally in uh, Disney's animation trainee program and I ran to the commissary to inform him and I said, Mr. Yunkin, I, I got hired by Disney Studios. He put his coffee down and he looked at me square in the face and he said, John, why are you giving up a fabulous career in illustration to go draw Donald Ducks? <laughs> and he was just, he just basically disowned me. <laughs> just, wow. Which is interesting because at that time, this is the kind of reputation that not only Disney, but animation in general had in the art community. As a matter of fact, in the elite art community, everybody looked down at Disney Studios. Right, right. And it just didn't have the legitimacy or the star appeal to any artist, except for someone like me who got bit by the buck. It was too and, commercial. And, it was too commercial. That's really yeah, what it was yeah. with, and, with a lot of artists. Yeah. And, and they were just aware of the fact they didn't understand the processes of animation. All they knew is that you'd be drawing Donald Duck after drawing Donald Duck, Donald Duck, Donald Ducks. And it, it was just kind of prostituting yourself as far as he was concerned. Mm. But that didn't deter, de, deter me because I, I just had to say my adieus. And I went on to start at uh, the Disney training program. Remember, it was February 7th. 1973. So we're almost coming up to 50 years. I was just about to say, you know, now, now you, I have to say you, you, were you in the training program with Dale Bear and Ted Kiersey and those guys? He, um, Dale was the year before me. Okay. Uh, he was hired either, I think in 71, 71 yeah. or 72. He was like one of the first in the trainee program. So he was just before me. But, um, and we got to meet and we, we got to be close friends. Uh, as a matter of fact, the first professional animation I did for Disney was on Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2. Both Dale and I were on that production. Right. And um, great, it, was, it was great working with him. He's a great artist, great animator. Um, but I mean, it's, it's like um, I was part of maybe, I was probably probably the seventh or eighth person in the trainee program that they hired. Yeah. And um, they put me in the supply room in between. Um, there was an old guy there named Johnny Bond. Oh, yeah. And he had his assistant, Joe Morris, who basically took over yeah. the supplies department. Love Joe. And I, in between Johnny Bond and Ed Hansen's office, there was this little cubicle of a supply room that they 
stuck me in until they got what they call the bullpen upstairs ready. Mm. And so um, I was in there for about my first week and basically the training program, and they knew that I wanted to become a background artist. They took me upstairs, Ed Hansen took me upstairs and introduced me to um, Al Dempster, who was the head of the background department back then. And he wished me good luck. And they said, um, you'll be a better background artist if you understand the principles of animation. So we would like you to go through the animation course, learn what you can. And then after you've graduated from that, we will place you uh, as a you know fledgling background artist to learn everything you want to know about backgrounds. And I said, I'd be glad to do that. Uh, I'm in your hands, whatever you, whatever you think is best. So for that first month, I was doing um, animation pencil test. I designed my characters and uh, they put me upstairs. I was, uh, my first mentor there at Disney Studios was Eric Larson. Eric Larson. You remember Eric Larson. Oh my gosh. Eric, Eric was really one of the, the last of the nine old men uh, yeah. to leave the animation department. Yeah. Uh, but, but at that point in, in the early 70s, uh, most of the nine old men were still there, right? They were. I mean, I got to meet Les Clark. Ken Anderson uh, introduced me to Les Clark. Mark Davis was over at uh, Wed Imagineering. Back there. Well, yeah. before it was just Wed. Before yeah. we called it Imagination, Imagineering. Uh, and then Willie Reiterman, John Lounsbury, Frank Thomas, Holly Johnston. Uh, Ward Kimball would come by and say hi every once in a while. So they were all still there. Yeah. Um, and it, what an amazing time to be at Disney Studio, 1973. I mean, they were in the thick of uh, wrapping up Robin Hood. Yeah. Um, and so they introduced me to Eric Larson. Eric was extremely kind, patient, generous soul. And he was very excited about the trainee program. It all the artists were at that time because it reminded them of the 1930s when they started. Mm. It kind of turned into this uh, frat house upstairs with us in the bullpen. There was um, um, Dick Sebast, Andy Gaskell, Alan Huck, um, Ron Clemens came in like four or five months after I started. I mean, it was it was terrific. It was great. And we all challenged each other. We were buddies and, and we, you know, kind of encouraged each other. But that first month I did my tests. It was this uh, little frog character who was a magician and his little side assistant, this turtle. And the uh, turtle would come walking out with top hat on a shell and the frog would reach in and produce a, a rabbit. Um, and I saw my first pencil test in Eric Larson's office. Now he had a little side room for what he, for his um, projector called a moviola. Yeah. Now, to the listeners that have never heard that term, what a moviola is, it's this machine that has uh, three and four heads on it for different reels where you can run your picture, your soundtrack, another soundtrack or dialogue track, and a music track. And everything was in 35 millimeter film. So I would get back a test that was a spool of 35 millimeter film with my own animation on it. So he carefully threaded it up and we looked at it, my first test. And something happened there. The test was God awful. But uh, looking at it with Eric, you know, he was very kind and very encouraging. He says, oh, you got some nice things there, John. You got a little squash and stretch, silhouette value, and some of the things I've been showing you. Keep up the good work, very encouraging. But for me, I looked at that 
and something happened. I saw something that I created from nothing. It was like being God. And even it was as crude and horrible as it was, I got bit by the bug at that very moment, Dave. When I yeah. saw the first test, I threw away the paintbrushes. I didn't want to be a background artist anymore. I wanted to be an animator. Yeah, yeah. And it was amazing. I mean, it was a, quite a paradigm shift at that time, and it's stayed with me even to this day. You know, there's nothing like animation. You have to become that which you create. If you're an animated pencil, you got to think like a pencil. If you're a ballerina, you've got to learn ballerina steps. You've got to become that which you create to make it authentic and believable for the viewing audience that you're entertaining. And it was just, uh, it's an addicting art form and it bit me hard. So animation is what I wanted to do. And, and, and so what happened there with, you know, with, with the management, because they, they had you sort of earmarked to go into yeah. the background department. What, what did, what, what did you say? I, I, I want to be an animator. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were delighted. They were delighted. And, um, um, I basically informed them of my change of heart uh, through Eric, I said to Eric, I said, this is fantastic. This is what I want to do. Uh, I was so supercharged that my follow-up test, the test after that, I decided to team with one of the uh, other animators in the bullpen, Dick Sebast. We, they let us take, um, go through and pick outtakes of Prince John and Sir Hiss from Robin Hood, Peter Ustinoff and Terry Thomas lines that they did not use. They had a whole sequence that they discarded. And we said, could we please take that and animate it? And they said, yes, go ahead. So we got these X sheets filled out with all the vowels and consonant breakdowns. And, you know, I never did any dialogue animation, but we jumped in and for two months, we did this great test where I was animating Prince John and uh, Dick was animating Sir Hiss and they were interacting together. And we staged it, we laid it out, we did the whole Megillah. And we showed that to um, uh, the review board, which was made up of all the guys, all the, you know, Frank, Ollie, Milt, Wooly, John Lounsbury, um, all of and Ed Hansen, they would all review this and they watched what we did and they, they were encouraged, they loved it. And so the next thing I know is that I'm called into a meeting with Frank Thomas and Wooly Reiterman. And they're informing me, we would like to get you started working with us on Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2. And uh, we would like to move you down into D-Wing and work under Frank Thomas's supervision. Can you imagine that? Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, uh, and this included Dale Bear, too. Dale was uh, brought into the, the scenario. He was going to be animating a section of Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2. And... Um, yeah, it was, it was amazing. So back up a little bit, too. Uh, I forgot to mention, you know, on that first week that I started at Disney Studios when they were putting me in the supply room, the first person I meet comes trailing into supply room and introduces himself, and it's Gary Goldman. Oh, my Gary gosh. Yeah. My first was my first friend that I made at Disney Studios. Now, he had already been there almost a year and a half, maybe two years, and he had gone through the intern program, and he was at that moment, at that time, Frank Thomas's assistant. Wow! On uh, on Robin Hood, and um, I'm sure he's got his own set of stories about what life was like back then. The atmosphere you could 
was almost all that was missing was Walt. Yeah. Because all of the um, all of the feuds, all of the jungle atmosphere, <laughs> the, the the cutthroat attitudes with artists, you know, trying to outdo the others, the competitive spirit was still alive. Mm-hmm. And it was it was interesting for that first four or five years that I was there back in the 70s. It all, all it was almost like you could expect Walt to walk in at any moment and take a look at your work or, you know, shoot the breeze with you. Yeah. Yeah. Because the artists back then were still operating and and performing as if they were still performing for Walt. Mm. So it was a great it was a great time to be there. That eventually faded away, but at that point it was <laughs> it was pretty amazing. I mean, that was and, only like a half a dozen years after Walt had passed away. Correct. So Walt yeah. was uh, he left uh, the Earth in December of '66. Yeah. So 67, 68, 69, 70, 71, 72, 73. So we're talking about seven years, uh, yeah. you know, maybe all, a little over six uh, after he passed away. But, you know, that element was still mm-hmm. still strong. Yeah. And um, Willie Reiterman took over the animation department after Walt died. He, he was a fabulous guy, and I really enjoyed working with him. But Gary Goldman was the first friend that I made there. And you know what? He would hang out in the bullpit with us. I would I would go downstairs and visit him in his office and peer over his shoulder to see the Frank Thomas scene. He was being breaking down or, or getting ready for in-betweens. And uh, he told me of one of the other artists that was in that wing that I hadn't met yet, and that was Don Bluth. Right. So after about two or three weeks of being up in the bullpen, Gary says, come on, knock down. I want to introduce you to Don. And I went in and he introduced me to Don. Don was very charming. And he was working on some scenes, I think, with Sir Hiss. Sir Hiss was walking in like a little cradle. It was a sequence where uh, Prince John and Sir Hiss are asleep and Robin Hood breaks into the bedroom to steal the gold. And um, Don was really, uh, he, he was kind of... Um, kind of my link to the nine old men and that he is of the generation uh, in between mine and that older generation of the nine old men. He had yeah. been at Disney Studios uh, as John Lonsbury's assistant back in the 50s on Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. And then again on um, Sword and Stone back in the early 60s. So he had a lot of experience. He was very cordial, very kind and generous. And we became friends. Uh, Gary, Donna, myself became like this little animation troika. We were on fire about preserving the Disney way of classical animation. And uh, we were encouraging each other, showing each other little tests and giving each other advice. It was terrific. And, and um, so you, you became an animator and you you worked on not only uh, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2, but you did many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, uh, The Rescuers, yes. Pete's Dragon. And then you guys, uh, you guys kind of got together to do the small one, right? I mean, that was sort yeah. of Don, Don's directing debut. If yeah, I'm that not. was his, yeah. yes. And they, uh, from the very beginning, when I, I met Don in 73, they were already kind of um, nurturing him and his position to become a leader in the animation department. Yeah. They knew that um, as they were, as the older guys were retiring, they needed to pass on the torch 
uh, to the next generation of artists. And they, and they needed a leader, someone who would take over for Wooly, become the director. And so they nurtured that. They, uh, they promoted after uh, Rescuers Are Over, I'm not sure if Don was one of the if he was uh, credited as a directing animator, but they were certainly loading him up with a lot more responsibility. And at the end of Rescuers, he was called into a, a special meeting with Ken Anderson and some other producers, and they appointed him as animation director in the movie Pete's Dragon. Right. Pete's Dragon was a combination live action animation film with Helen Reddy and Mickey Rooney and and Jim Dale. And uh, it was it was a great vehicle to advance his career, Don's career as a leader. And um, and so we after Rescuers, um, we went on to that production. We were on that for almost a year, maybe about eight months to a year, I think, doing Elliot scenes. Uh, Elliot sure. And so that went so well that Ron Miller, who was kind of the the head of uh Disney animation back then decided let's give Don even more responsibility. Let's make him director of this feature at the small one, this Christmas special. Yeah. So I think that happened in 78, I believe. So we were on that and they, and at that time, more trainees were coming out of, um, out of Cal arts. We had uh, Brad bird who was a trainee who was working with us on small one. Yeah. Uh, Bill Croyer, um, oh my gosh! Let's see. John Musker came out of Cal Arts. Um, just uh, Jerry Reese. I mean, there were so many people yeah. who became prominent in the animation. Yeah, it's it's like a who's who. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it really is. And, and and with the with the small one, I you know that's like 1978, uh, the small one. And uh, uh, the following year, you guys do Banjo the Woodpile Cat, but you're doing that. I, I, that's kind of overlapping at night and on weekends, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we were. How, we how were, did that all come about? We were moonlighting. I, Don made me aware of their uh, a little operation in his garage. And it started out like they're teaching us at Disney everything we need to know about the art of animation, but we're not learning anything about the business of animation. Uh, how do you contract musicians? How do you uh, how do you budget a feature film? Um, all these questions. How do you do animated special effects? There were a lot of things that we didn't know about, you know, editorial, or how mm-hmm. to build a story reel, uh, how to launch a production with production concept art i mean and then the business end of it the money side of it we needed to to know and um, we had a lot of questions that uh we weren't getting answers not because they didn't want to give them to us is because so much of the focus back then in our training was about animation as i was working with frank thomas and he was supervising my work it was all animation driven later on as i worked on rescuers i was under ollie johnston's supervision and we were so engrossed with learning about the art form, but very little about the business. So in Don's garage, we were starting from scratch. You know, we uh, we started um, um, purchasing editorial equipment. We started purchasing uh, purchasing animation desk. Johnny Bond, who was in charge of supply there at Disney, was cre- he actually constructed three or four animation desks to go in Don's garage. So slowly we were starting to learn what it's like to actually put together an animated film from scratch, bottom up. 
Yeah. And we were learning about budgets. We were learning about editorial. We were learning about soundtracks and on and on and on. Things that came in handy later on for Don as he started out uh, when he was working as uh, animation director on Pete's Dragon. Some of that knowledge he was getting, he was able to roll over and apply to his new responsibilities at Disney. It got to be so successful in his garage, we were actually training new uh, in-betweeners and animation artists. I think Mike Humphreys, a background artist. Yeah. He started in Don's garage also. I mean, he was learning his craft in Don's garage. Um, and Sue Croyer got her start. I teach, I taught her how to do in-betweens. Uh, the actor, um, Richard Dreyfuss's sister, Kathy, became an animation trainee in Don's garage. Uh, so it was a thriving atmosphere and Ed Hansen, uh, our animation supervisor, came over and visited our operation in the garage. He loved it. He said, this is fantastic. Uh, he was so impressed. He actually hired uh, Sue Croyer, Sally Boris, and two or three other artists. I think he hired uh, Vera Pacheco back then, wow. Vera Law. Wow, uh, yeah. Kind of the head of cleanup who just um, sad enough, uh, sadly passed yes. away uh, two or three months ago. Yeah, very sad, back in December. But yeah. she, she was learning also her craft in Don's Garage. So it was a terrific operation back then. Did they, so it, it sounds to me like they didn't take it as a threat. They, they looked at it as it was just extracurricular activity of yes. the artists. Yeah, they looked know? at it. I mean, it was, it, they looked at it as us being excited about the art form and wanting to learn more. They almost equated it to um, uh, Walt sending his artist to uh, Chouinard to learn how to draw better when they were working with Don Graham and trying to elevate their artistry. They, yeah. they were very encouraged by the whole operation. And back then it was, it was to serve the purpose that we would take this knowledge and use it at Disney. Right, right. And then at some point, I guess in the uh, 78, 79, it became apparent that Disney was kind of in a creative rut. And it got to the point where we thought, well, maybe the idea is that we take all this knowledge and we use it on our own yeah, and start our own studio. And uh, that's what happened back in 1979. Right. And, and you guys did Secret of NIM. We did Secret of NIM. Yeah. I mean, that was which, which by the way, is, a, is an absolutely gorgeous movie. Oh, thank you. And, and, and I, I have to say, I think that I think that was probably a wake up call for Disney. Well, it certainly was a wake-up call to you because you joined us a few years after that. <laughs> that, that I, I, I did. I, I actually, you know, no, I, you know, my my first my first job out of Cal Arts in early it, it was the summer of 1983 yep. was at the Don Bluth Studios in Studio City, California. That's correct. And, and I was in the annex which yeah. was a small building from the, uh, that was just like maybe a half a block away from the, uh, from, from the main studio. 
and we were in an we were in an office, and the offices across the hall from me was a casting office for for adult movies. So, <laughs> I remember. But, yeah, I remember. And, and by the way, um, uh, it was after you guys did Secret of Nim. Uh, I I came in in '83 when you guys were working on Dragon's Lair, the the, that yeah. that video game, yeah. and and Space Ace, uh, yeah. but. You know, again, so, but you guys do Secret of NIM. Did you do Secret of NIM in Studio City at that facility? We did. We did. Yeah. That, that building we occupied, I think we moved in uh, in January, uh, first week of January, 1980. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. We, we started right off the bat with, uh, I remember animating The Great Owl, uh, that whole sequence where Grisby is flown over to the, forest by uh, Jeremy. And it's interesting because we were starting to build our prowess as our own entity, our company. I mean, there was so much hoopla about us leaving do, uh, Disney Studios. It was a scary, it was a scary venture. And we sure. always equated it to leaving the Queen Mary in our own little dinghy and rowing out to the open sea. I in, mean, in the fog, right? The fog. I mean, on a foggy oh, evening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we still had a lot of friends that we would keep in contact with. I mean, I, and we met Wooly and um, Ken Anderson at some function for animation, a CIFA or something. And they were just hugging us and rallying. They were so encouraging. So we're glad with you guys. It'll help create competition it'll help make our studio that much stronger which it did in, in its own way i mean competition breeds success and yeah. well and that's why i say i mean i i didn't work on secret and nim but uh i i was just blown away by secret and nim when i saw it in the theaters because because i just thought my gosh this is not you know this is not a disney film but it's a disney film you know what i mean it, it, that that was my feeling at the time and and uh, uh i have to say uh it it, it certainly was a uh, a seminal moment in the industry there were there was a lot of excitement i think there was a lot of excitement too with a lot of the trainees we left at disney studios even though it left a real wound i think to the higher in command who are expecting us to take over and i understand that now i i sure you know uh you know i was so gung-ho about starting on studio that uh i didn't realize the dilemma that we had put them in um it, it, but it's funny, it created a lot of excitement. I remember in 1981, we were like midway through animating uh, Secret of Nim, and I would stay there till midnight. I mean, we were so stoked about what we were doing. I would be like the night watchman. I would lock up at midnight. Yeah. And I was walking out to my car. It was that little Swiss chalet building. We were in back of the... Um, Oh, what some bank? I can't remember the name of the. It bank. was the it was the Crocker Bank. Crocker Bank, okay. we, we, right which is Pittsburgh. which, by the way, is still there, but it was absorbed. Crocker Bank was absorbed by Wells Fargo, so uh, that bank building is still there, and oh, it's uh, a Wells Fargo bank. But if you go over to the drive-through uh, uh, ATM machine, yeah, there's yeah. a concrete uh, sort of. Uh, 
a pilast or a pillar yeah. uh, uh, holding up one of the you know struts of the, uh, yeah, yeah. the cover for the for the pull through of the you know the drive through of the of the ATM and the old Crocker um, uh, lighthouse logo is is you know stamped into that concrete um, and, and by the way the 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 Blue Studio is still there that building is still there on Ventura Boulevard in Studio City there was a little court yard with a little fountain in between the two buildings yeah and yeah. Uh, the one night i'm locking up i walk out to my car it's midnight and i start to get in my car and i see two people at our entrance peering in through the door and i walk up there and it's john musker and gail they <laughs> <laughs> came over just to look inside they <laughs> we got into a conversation they wanted to know how we're doing i told them hey we're doing great uh, we're working at all hours of the night. I mean, it, there was an excitement, you know, about what we were trying to accomplish. And I think some of that excitement spilled over to, you know, uh, Disney ranks too. I remember uh, Randy Cartwright came to the premiere. It was either a Banjo the Whip Wildcat or the premiere of Secret of Nim. I think it, it was at the Schubert Theater in Century City. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it was just great to, to, to feel the encouragement. And, uh, you know, from, and, 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 and because of secret of NIM, uh, and, and the dragon's lair and space ace video games, I mean, really that's kind of where Spielberg comes into the picture to, to want to do yeah, that, it because no, he was, because he was yeah. a big fan of animation and, and yes, the, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, secret of NIM was never a financial success initially. Right. Uh, we are, our distribution was handled by uh, MGM United Artists. They really had no concept about how to treat or release an animated film. And at that, in that year, we were under the shadow of their, their main film, Victor Victorious. They were putting all of their marketing prowess and all of their, you know, in all, all of their strength in releasing that film. So we became kind of the orphan kid on the block. And we got what's called a rollout campaign, which was like, a rollout sequence of so many theaters. I don't think we were in any more than four or 500 theaters at a time. Oh. And it didn't do, it was heartbreaking. I mean, that was, that was really, <laughs> it was hard. What? But it, what's interesting is we had a fan who saw that movie and it turned out to be Steven Spielberg. Mm -hmm. And um, it was his film that E.T. that also put, the nail in our coffin as far as anybody watching Secret of Nim because we were up against E.T. that summer when we were released. But he came to our studio. He called He called us, came over. We had like a three-hour lunch, and we became blood brothers. I mean, he loved talking with all of us. He did. He, he couldn't understand why, why isn't anybody else doing the kind of effects that were in Secret of Nim. He loved the fire, the minutia. Uh, the do the glittering dude uh, dew drops all of the you know everything yeah. just supercharged his appetite to want to get together and do a production with us and that's what happened and that was American Tale 
that was, was the first the third the first one, which was called American Tale. There was a follow up later on, which was uh, American Tale: Five Goes West. Right. But right. but you did American Tale, which by the way, I have a screen credit on because I was doing a little freelance on the side while I was working <laughs> oh, yeah. at Disney. Yeah, I, I was, you know. Um, uh, but but at the end of uh, American Tale, you guys uh, moved over, and American Tale, by the way, was a big success. In, yeah. in, in, in fact, I would, I've had numerous conversations with, with animation professionals over the years, and all of us point to American Tale, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and The Little Mermaid as the sort of trifecta of the rebirth of uh, the, yes. or the, what, what, what we now refer to as the renaissance of animation. And you know what? Bless you for mentioning that, because it, it, it's true. Those three really... What's interesting is American Tale when it came out. Normally, an animated feature would be would gro be grossing you know eighteen to twenty million dollars, and that was considered a success. Yeah, that film when it came out. So that's we're talking um, November of nineteen eighty six. It came out and it grossed sixty five million dollars. When a movie comes out and does that kind of dollar amount, you get the attention of Fox, Disney, Warner's, Paramount, all the majors suddenly said, "Hey, this is this we can make some money here." And uh, and Universal and all of them began starting their own animation departments. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so uh, the competition became that much greater, uh, and the workforce followed, and it, it was an amazing renaissance, particularly with Disney. Mm -hmm. Because that was followed by Who Framed Roger Rabbit and then Little Mermaid. Yeah, but I think also, you know, it's worth pointing out that, you know, in that 84 to 86 period, uh, there was a major upheaval at Disney. You know, yeah. there, was, there was a big change out of management and Roy E. Disney totally. came back in, Michael oh, Eisner and, and Frank yeah. Wells was brought in. Then they brought in Jeffrey and a lot of the executives from Paramount. And, yeah. and it really sort of was this rebirth, not initially, by the way, because when you talk to and, I, you know, I knew Roy E. and I and I talked to him quite a bit about this. When, you know, he told me that uh, when Frank and Michael Eisner first came into the company, their initial uh, feeling was to shut down the animation yeah. department. Right. Right. Uh, you know, we were coming off the heels of the black cauldron and all of that. And I think they didn't understand animation. They, they thought they were going to just close it down. And yeah. Roy stepped up and said, no, no, if animation is well, the company's going to do well. And, and I think that's about true with animation as an industry. If animation is doing well, there's a lot of companies doing well. Out you know there. what? Um, and you, the studio owes a great deal of thanks to Roy Disney. I mean, yeah. Roy was a great guy. He was all about Walt's legacy. Yes. You know, and it's funny, so much so that he eventually got into kind of a feud with Michael Eisner because Michael Eisner was not a fan of doing uh, Fantasia 2000. And yeah, but I think it was also when Frank Wells got killed uh, in that helicopter crash. Yeah. You know, they were a yin yang, the two of them. Uh, yeah. They, they, you know, Frank kept Michael in balance, and when Frank was killed, Michael was was without a rudder, essentially. You know, and and, well and yeah, yeah, and started doing things that you know Roy Roy wasn't uh, particularly keen on. But I want to get back to you know your your 
stuff here because at the end of American Tale with that huge success, you guys moved over to Ireland. Yeah, that now that's an interest. I mean, we, that was uh, a a uh, an economy means. Uh, it was a solution to pricing ourselves out of business. I mean, our budgets were small with Universal. Um, Land Before Time was the feature that that uh, that Stephen wanted to do next, and this was an original concept that he came up with. And uh, he came in. He brought George Lucas into the mix to help with story. And uh, George was helping us out with fabricating a plot line that made sense. But the budget was so. I mean, I can't remember the exact figure. This is a Gary Goldman question. He would probably know all the ins and outs about the budget. It didn't allow us to do the, the things that we wanted to do. Right. And um, the, the it, 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 we had a new CEO, Morris Sullivan, who came in right around the time we were doing the games, Dragon's Lair and Space Ace. And neither Don, myself, or Gary had any business experience. We were, we were in lawsuits and our business problems were basically uh, up to our eyebrows. Morris Sullivan was introduced to us by uh, uh, Don's brother, Sam, and he came in and gave us a business footing that we were very grateful for. And he came up with the idea of approaching a overseas, uh, overseas government or country about starting an animation studio. The idea was to help bring the cost down to afford us to be able to do uh, a land before time. And um, Amblin Universal allowed us to make that production overseas. I think Morris approached uh, South America. He approached uh, Asia, Canada, Mexico, and various other countries uh, overseas. The one country that came back with an overwhelming response was Ireland. Yeah. The uh, IDA, the Industrial Developmental Authority, was just eager to be able to start a business in their country because all of their art graduates were leaving in droves. There was no industry there to support them as a workforce. So they loved that idea. They would give us tax benefits. They would give us a, a four-story building in a great location and tons of art talent. They were welcoming us with open arms. So. It took about eight months to be able to secure that deal. In the last months of American Tale, I don't know if you remember, there were the first um, group, about 20 Irish students and uh, art students that came over and began working with us right there in our location in Van Nuys. Remember, we, we moved from Studio City to Van Nuys in this little warehouse facility uh, right next to Van Nuys Airport. We were off of Sherman Way, I think. And uh, these first uh, Irish talent came on and they were starting to learn uh, things about editorial, uh, background, layout, and we were trying to absorb them into the last six months of American Tale. Yeah. And in the, into the very beginning of Land Before Time, which we just began a little bit before we finally committed and left uh, for Ireland. And uh, I remember that on the week of the premiere of American Tale is when we all got onto planes and flew over to Ireland. We actually celebrated Thanksgiving there in Dublin. 
Well, John, we are bumping up against our time for for this episode, but we're going to yes. have you back next week because I want to continue this conversation. A lot more uh, to cover, Dave. Oh, my gosh. There's so much more to cover. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm going to say this is the end of part one, and we're going to uh, see you next week for part two. Fantastic. It's great talking with you, Dave, and you too, Al John. Thank you so much for having me on. Your attention, please. Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. I tell you, one of the one of the films that you you'd mentioned, you know, you're working on Secret of Nim. That was one of the very first movies um, I remember seeing. That's not true. Probably the f- first five. Uh, An American Tale. I remember seeing in the theater when those the, uh, those movies came out. One of my earliest uh, <laughs> recollections of seeing those movies. And man, I hope he comes back for more. Yeah, you know something. Uh, I I just there was a flood of memories coming back as we talked to him. Um, I didn't work on Secret in Him, but he did. Uh, I I did work on uh, uh, did some freelance work on American Tale, and of course Land Before Time, yeah. uh, as we mentioned. But uh, you know, it's so great ch- just chatting with him. And I just want to remind our listeners: next week will be part two because again, you know, John Pomeroy is a titan in the animation industry, and. Uh, you know, honestly, we're going to have to have him back further just to talk about specific projects because, you know, we 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 skated across some some shows that we just didn't have time to talk about in depth. So I'm looking forward to having him back again. Absolutely. There is so much to talk about. In fact, we have some great guesses. We said uh, John Pomeroy part two is coming up in the next edition of skull rock podcast and i would encourage everybody to shoot us those emails you know the emails are a great way for you to give feedback on the show let us know what kind of show topics and films we need to cover and tackle in upcoming episodes once again dave at skullrockpodcast.com or aljohn at skullrockpodcast.com you can also drop us those dms direct messages via facebook twitter and instagram and check out our entire archive of shows. We've got awesome interviews from over the past year and a half or so of us doing this show. And, and, and thank you so much for this feedback there at anchor.fm uh, and ev- everywhere and anywhere you get podcasts. So please spread the word and tell your friends about Skull Rock Podcast. Dave, final word. As always, peace and love to everybody out there in podcast land. Uh, thanks for listening. And uh, I know there's uh, there's some crazy weather going on. The East Coast is getting slammed with a blizzard. So if you can stay indoors, nice and warm, and enjoy listening to the Skull Rock podcast. And uh, if you have to go out, be careful. Everybody, just mask up, be careful. Let's get out of this pandemic. And we'll see you next week right here on the Skull Rock podcast. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise 
Disney Park Trip, Adventures by Disney. They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook. The Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.